Um, as you know, I would imagine, you know, this Thursday is Thanksgiving, and so on Thanksgiving and Christmas are the two times, and Easter, are the, two, are the three times when I break from uh, the normal series to focus in on the holiday. Um, we don't break for all the other times of the year, all the other dates of the year, but for those three we do, and this week is Thanksgiving. And so I wanted us to... Um, spend some time this morning in Psalm 29. In a little while, we'll go to Mark, and then we'll finish up uh, later in one of the um, epistles. But uh, Psalm 29 is, is, a, is a beautiful song, and I'll talk about it here in a minute, but it um, is referred to as the storm psalm. And I think as we read it, you'll understand why. But we'll read beginning in verse 1 down through verse 11. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Syrian is Mount Hermon. It's another name for Mount Hermon, which you've probably heard of. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. And actually, um, I think a better translation there is makes the oaks shake. It goes with what follows. The language there can be vocalized one way or the other. And the alternative vocalization is that the oaks shake. So the voice of the Lord makes the oaks shake and strips the forest bare and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. And the Lord gives strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. As I mentioned a moment ago, this psalm, which is written by David, is referred to as, by some as the storm psalm. We don't know for sure when it was written. It often helps uh, in understanding a psalm to know when a particular psalm was written, what the context of the person's life was, but we really don't know for sure what the circumstances were in David's life when he wrote it or what his age is. But uh, there is a partial clue, I think, in 1 Chronicles 16. And that passage, if you want to look at it later on, uh, 1 Chronicles 16 and the surrounding story is when the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember that story? They captured the Ark of the Covenant and they set it up in front of their God, uh, the idol of their God, and their God kept falling down and to the the point that they finally said, we don't want this thing, and you guys take it back. And so David, as a young king, goes with a contingency of people to go get it, 
And as they brought it back, that's the story where uh, the one guy, the, the ark was beginning to move on the cart because they weren't carrying it correctly. And one guy reached out to stabilize it and died immediately. And then it, the ark sits there for a while. And then eventually the ark is brought back. David brings it back to Jerusalem. And um, the, there's this controversial moment in that story where David strips down to his underclothes and dances. He's so excited and so happy. He dances in front of the ark and his wife, Michael, sees out the window and criticizes him. Are you guys familiar with this story? Uh, some people may not be as familiar with the story, but it's, it's 1 Chronicles 16 if you wanna read it. But Michael, who is Saul's daughter, uh, tells David that that's not how a king should act. And uh, David is just kind of like, stick it in your beak and I'm worshiping God and you leave me alone. And, um, but he, he brings it back to the tabernacle and after it's placed in the tabernacle, he breaks out in this long extended song of thankfulness where he says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. I don't know if that sounds at all familiar with what we just read. And then he says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering and come before him, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, which that's very close to Psalm 29 and verse one. And so my thinking, my opinion is that probably this Psalm was written after that event happened. David sat down and put this Psalm together in worship of God. But whatever the, the circumstances around it, following verse one, where David calls people, calls his people to worship God because of his glory and strength, David goes on to poetically describe for us a massive storm that symbolically demonstrates the power of God's voice. He links this, the, the thunder of this storm moving across the, the, the land and, uh, and wants us to see who God is and to see his power. Now, just for reference sake, and I thought maybe because of the current events and everything with Israel and uh, the, the uh, Hamas, you might like a map to see where everything is. And, and I think it's helpful to see how this storm moves. So if Kim, you wanna put that map up there and I hope it's clear enough. It probably is not clear enough to be seen way in the back, but that's your fault for taking a seat in the back. If you have been sitting right up in these seats, you know, in a Baptist church, these seats are irrelevant. All they're there for is to establish where people start sitting. That's just the way it works. These are irrelevant, except for Salome. And she's just probably the only one here who's saved. And she sits up in the <laughs> front row. But um, if you can see on here, at the very top there, that, so that red line on there, it indicates probably where this storm came from and where it moved down to. So it starts up on the Mediterranean Sea, moves across the Lebanon Mountains, which are the first, that first dark circle, that's the mountains of Lebanon there, where the cedars of Lebanon are. And then the second dark circle is Mount Hermon, or Syrian, as he calls it here, Mount Hermon. So it's moving across, the, the Lebanon mountains coming in, goes across Mount Hermon, which is the largest, highest mountain in, uh, in that land. I'm, I'm, 
I'm a little bit nervous to call it the land of Palestine. That has been a long-term way of referencing this whole area. Um, but it's kind of a charged term today because when people hear Palestine, they immediately think of what's going on over there. But historically, this has been called Palestine. And so Palestine actually extends up into Lebanon, goes down further. But uh, it moves then south from Mount Hermon. And you, I don't know if you can see where the Dead Sea is there. Um, but on the western side of the Dead Sea is a range of mountains. And it's pretty typical that those storms would move along the front or western edge of those mountains. And then David tells us it exits, it exits down into Kadesh, which you're probably familiar with that from Kadesh Barnea, which is the place where the Israelites went to. Uh, they had their short trip after they left Egypt and they went out. If you remember from our study in Numbers, they went out, they came to Kadesh Barnea, which is where they were supposed to go into the land. They sent out spies, the spies came back and said, no, we should not do this. And then they wandered in that wilderness for 40 years before they eventually traveled on the east side of the Dead Sea up to the Jordan River and then came in later on after 40 years. But I thought that might help you um, to kind of have a picture of how this storm is moving. David didn't see the whole storm. It isn't like David was sitting on his rooftop and, um, and, and he saw this storm up, way up north over the Mediterranean Sea coming down over the mountains of Lebanon. Probably David throughout his years saw storms move through and was familiar with their track. So I called this graphic Storm Track 1 because it's kind of like a weather report. Okay, everybody's still awake and with me. But I wanted you to be able to visualize. It helped me and I wanted you to be able to visualize it. But this storm sweeps in from the Mediterranean Sea, moves over South Lebanon, comes over Mount Hermon and begins to move down towards the central area of the land of Israel. But David speaks of this, this is, a, this is a huge, massive electrical storm that David is describing. This isn't just an average everyday summer storm. This one, as it comes over the mountains, has wind with it that snaps the cedars of Lebanon. Those were massive, beautiful cedars. They were known all around the Middle East for their beauty and their size. And they were, if you, if you were rich, you would use cedar wood from Lebanon in your houses or in your buildings or whatever. They were, they were very valuable and they were, David says that they're taken down. The voice of the Lord heard in the thunder breaks the cedars. It breaks the cedars of Lebanon. It makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian or Mount Hermon like a young wild ox. David is saying this thunder is so intense and so close that it's making these mountains shake as it moves through. Anybody here been in a thunderstorm like that? We've been through the derecho. I was thinking of the derecho right away when I was reading this, um, how, the, how the wind came through and just snapped off the trees. I still, as I think back on the derecho, and the piles of branches that we all had down our sidewalks, you know, and it looked like we were all playing army. 
Uh, you could just hide, hide behind there and throw things at your neighbors if you wanted to. But all those trees, I still can't wrap my head around the fact that we lost 70% of the tree canopy in Cedar Rapids. And you still see people who come to Cedar Rapids now are like, wow, you guys have a lot of trees. And it's just like, you have no clue what it used to be like around here. Streets are just bare and you're starting to see them be replanted. But I don't remember, it might have been because I was hiding in my basement, but I don't remember watching the water pour in down my basement walls because it was coming through my windows and through the siding down in. But uh, I don't remember that much thunder. I remember the winds and I remember when I ran upstairs to see what was going on with, with the water, I remember tall trees just coming down to a 90 degree and going back up, not the big thick oaks, but the smaller ones just coming down to a 90 degree and going back up over and over again. And at times the wind was so steady that they would just stay there. They weren't even coming back up. They'd stay there and then eventually come back up. But this storm not only has those kinds of winds, but it has incredible intense thunder. It's, it's an incredibly strong electrical storm. I, I remember a time when we were up at Northland and, and out across from our house uh, on campus, there was a, uh, uh, a field and we had a thunderstorm and it was a very powerful electrical storm that came through and Rachel, our oldest and I were standing at the front door watching because I've never seen this before, but there were just multiple lightning strikes to the ground in that field out there. So the rain was pouring and just one after another, these strikes hitting the ground and we just stood there and watched it because that's what stupid people do. Um, but the thunder that accompanied that was just incredible as well. And that's what David is seeing. He speaks here of the fire, the flashes of fire as this storm moves to the south it moves out into the wilderness of Kadesh Barnea. It's a full experience of, of senses. It's wind, it is lightning, continuous flashing, and then the loud echoes of the thunder. And when it moves into Kadesh Barnea, which is a desert and a, um, uh, a wilderness, this thunder, David says, it moves the ground like an earthquake. And David, in response to this, it's, it's very interesting. David says in awe of God's power, his faithful people ascribe glory to his name. I think we've kind of gotten away from that in our world today. We're, we're very quick to... Um, uh, especially those of us with a science background, we're very quick to see these kinds of storms and we start thinking of the, of the uh, uh, processes that are at work to produce the lightning and the thunder. Uh, I don't think David was, I don't think we should take David's expression here as an indication of his ignorance that this is, um, you know, uh, that there are not physical things at work that God is working through. I think David was smart enough to figure those things out. But David looks at God's creation in a moment of fury and says that 
as God's people realize God's power, they give glory. As he moves down into verses 10 and 11, David speaks to us about the God of the storm. And I wanted to use the New American Standard Bible for this section. I think it does a better job of translating it than the ESV. The ESV says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as God forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. What the ESV did, and I think that they didn't do well, is that they did not pick up on the the tenses of the verbs. They just put it there as though it's just present. But the tenses of the verbs, the Lord sat as king over the flood. The Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will. So it moves from a past to a present to a future. And the NASB picks up on that uh, very well in their translation of it. David wants us to understand that this God whose power can be seen in the storm, this God who is our God, rules in complete control over the storms of this world. He sat enthroned over the flood. What flood? Is it the flood? Is David talking about the flood that came from this massive storm that went through? That would seem to be the easiest explanation of this. But this word that we translate flood from the Hebrew is only used in one other place in the Bible. Anybody want to take a guess where the other place this particular word is used? It's easy. It's not a long limb. Noah's Ark. The story of Noah's Ark. Good job, David. The story of Noah's Ark, there's a word used for that flood that is only used there and it's used here. And it's set up, while the Hebrew doesn't have an exact definite article like Greek or our English language does, such as the, it does have nuances of that. But he, is, he says it is a proper translation that he sits enthroned over the flood. He sat enthroned over the flood. As David speaks of the power of God seen in this storm that passed through, he takes our minds back to the greatest storm that ever hit the face of the earth in the flood of Noah's Ark, where God in judgment, after warning people and having Noah preach for 120 years that God's judgment was coming upon the people of the earth for their sin, God brought this massive flood that involved the breaking up of water storm stores from under the earth and the releasing of water stores from over the earth and covered the entire earth with water. You say, you know, Pastor, I really don't believe in a whole earth flood. I'm sorry you take it up with God and the Bible. I happen to believe this Bible. 
And I think it's very clear in Genesis 8, 9, and 10 that there was a worldwide flood. It wasn't a localized flood, it was a worldwide flood and it completely covered the face of the earth. Well, scientifically, that means that this, I'm sorry, the Bible says is where I'm gonna stop. And I will remind you that I do have a degree in science. And I think with a scientific mind, and I find science fascinating, except for physics. Sorry, you guys that are all engineers. Physics was not my thing at all. Uh, just didn't, I didn't love it, but um, I, I do love science. But David, David believed in a worldwide flood. And he says, the worldwide flood that occurred was not just a random chaotic moment that happened in time and that God who is a deist sat back and went, hmm, boy, that's a terrible thing. Oh, well. And I'm glad Noah was smart enough to build an ark, kept that human race going. David says that that flood came at the hand of God and it came in judgment over human beings because of their sin. And he sat as sovereign over that flood. When the first raindrop fell, it fell at his command. And at the end, when the first plant began to bud and put out leaves and flowers, it came at his command. Our God sits sat enthroned as king over the greatest catastrophe that ever hit the face of this earth. But he moves on to tell us that this is not just some abstract fact that has no relevance or reality in our experience of life. He moves forward from he sat enthroned to this same Lord, Yahweh, sits enthroned as king forever. This sovereign king, a benevolent monarch, just finished um, a book on Catherine the Great, 25 hours of reading, if you need to fall asleep. It's one to help you do it, but it, it was fascinating history. But Catherine believed in being a benevolent monarch. But the only benevolent monarch, and if you read her story, you'll find out she wasn't always benevolent. The only benevolent monarch that has ever existed in the history of humanity is God. And that benevolent monarch rules over his people and his creation, and his benevolence is seen in the gifts he gives to his people. He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He gives us food, he cares for his people. We have, you know, as a church, we have this building. I have days where I'm not fond of this building when an air conditioner goes out or we, I see the mortgage payments and I sit back and I go, boy, that's a lot of money. And I'm gonna be glad when this place is paid off and we can use that money for some other purposes. 
But our building may not be as nice and fancy as some other buildings that are out there. But God has given us a nice building with right now air conditioning and heating. And we can sit here in nice chairs and nice clothes with stomachs that have been fed. And this afternoon we'll indulge ourselves with pie because we need to. That's good nutrition for all of us somehow. I've, I've spoken in churches in St. Vincent in the Caribbean. I spoke at a church where their place was the upstairs of a building that they rented for Sunday and Wednesday night. And we had to step over homeless drunk people on the stairs to get up there. The smell was horrific just to get up there. And when you got up there, there were broken windows and ceiling tiles falling down. And those people just met to worship. And they were thankful. I preached in beautiful buildings in Ukraine, in, in the capital city, where the, where the craftsmanship is just amazing, the old world craftsmanship that they still do. And yet that building caught a spark from another building from construction work and burned down about a year after I was there. And you know what they did? They cleaned away all of the rubble. They had a small basement. They set up chairs in this small basement that was left after they cleaned everything up and they met in the open air. Spring, summer, fall, and winter in Ukraine. We got in our beautiful cars today and we drove here. There was a lady at that church who was in her 80s or 90s who walked five miles to get to that church to be there for the services. Our good God in love gives rain to the just and the unjust and cares for his people specifically. He sits sovereign over the affairs of our lives. And David tells us that this all-powerful God who from eternity past has sat as king and who now sits as king will forever sit as king, gifting his people with strength and peace. And with the context of the passage, I would say gifting his people with strength and peace in the storms of, the, of this life. He is king, he is sovereign, nothing touches the life of his people, individually or corporately, that does not come from his good hand for their good benefit, even the things that we don't like. And when they are weak, and afraid, David tells us that this God is the source of their strength and peace. So I thought about this psalm, and I thought about the storm, and I thought about strength and peace, 
I couldn't escape another story of another storm in the Bible. It just kept coming back to my mind. And while you might like me to stop right now and be done on Thanksgiving week, we're gonna talk about that other storm. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Mark, Mark chapter four. It's a storm where the king's people were fearing, were feeling weary and afraid. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about this storm but Mark has a particular statement in the story that I want us to focus in on today. You're gonna recognize this story. It's one of the stories if you went to Sunday school as a little kid, you've heard this story, very familiar to you. But there's something in here that I think is so important in relation to understanding that our king sits enthroned, sovereign over the affairs of our life, especially in the storms. We'll pick up in verse 35, and I asked, uh, well, I had that put up there so that if you didn't have your Bible, you could follow along. So beginning in verse 35 of Mark 4, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. So Jesus had intent to go from one side to the other. And when Jesus has an intent to do something, how often do you think he doesn't get to do what he wanted to do? It's gonna happen. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I can just see them standing in the other part of the boat. I don't think they're talking loud. They're, they're like, who is this guy? The, the, the sea listens to him. And when it says they were filled with great fear, I don't think we should interpret that as awe. I think they were terrified of this guy who just stood up and told the wind to stop and the sea to be calm. This is the story of a sinking boat, a sleeping teacher, and some very scared disciples. So if you ever wanna preach this passage, you got an outline that's alliterated right away there. And as, as we read through this story, in our minds, we see this small fishing vessel, at least in my mind, maybe you see something bigger, but this small fishing vessel 
By the way, there's other boats with them on the water. They're all out there experiencing this. They're tossing on these massive waves out on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are holding on for dear life and they're probably bailing water at the same time because the water's coming over the sides of the boat. And meanwhile, Jesus is sleeping quite comfortably on a cushion. I had never noticed that before. I, I always pictured him laying on a board part of, you know, like a little thing, platform on the inside of the boat, but he's actually got a cushion, so he's got a pretty good setup here in this boat. Laying back, and he's asleep. And on the one hand, there's serenity in the storm. Jesus, on a cushion, fast asleep. Not a worry in the world. And he didn't have to take a pill to get to sleep. He lay down, he went to sleep, and it's all good. And he stayed asleep. And on the other hand, in contrast to the serenity, there is abject terror. These guys are scared out of their mind because as far as they're concerned, they're going down. They are done. And they are seemingly very exasperated. I don't know if you pick up on that. Because somebody finally shouts at Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? We're about to die. Don't you give a rip? And I, I read that question. I started thinking about that question in relation to Psalm 29. And I thought, what an ironic question. Don't you care that we're perishing? I think it's a very ironic question because of who they were questioning and why he was there in the first place. Why was Jesus even there to be asleep on a cushion in the middle of a storm? Did you, see, did you see that up there? They woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That teacher was God. This teacher is the king who sits enthroned over the storm. And when they woke him up, what do you think they expected him to do when they woke him up? Obviously, they did not expect him to stand up and say, peace, be still. That was not what they were expecting. Because when he did it, they were just like, who is this guy? That was not what they were expecting him to do. I think they expected him to grab a pail or use his hand and start, or something. Maybe move the boat fast to get it to the other side. But what he did do 
was not what they expected, but what they did do is what a king does. These guys expected him in some way to save them from perishing, but not in the way he did it. So there's irony in the question in relation to who he was that they were not grasping. And there's irony connected to that question because of why Jesus was even in that boat, on that body of water, located on this earth. Where did he technically, if nothing else of concern for human beings was going to happen, where technically should Jesus have been? I mean, he's omnipresent, but where do we think he came from? Where do we believe Jesus came from? Heaven. So why was he on the earth in the first place? And there's this verse that is so familiar to us, so familiar to us that we've forgotten what it says, really. It's just like, oh yeah, I know that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not, what's the word? Perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Do you get the irony of their question? Don't you care that we are perishing? I know I'm not enough like Jesus as everybody would like me to be. But if, it, if I were Jesus, I would be kind of like, how can you even ask me that question? I'm here so that you won't perish. But the problem is, their idea of perish and his idea of perish were two separate things. And he says to them, don't you have any faith? Don't you have any faith? Any faith in what? Any faith in who? Jesus is saying, don't you have any faith in me? I left heaven so that you would never have to perish. And you're concerned about earthly death. And I came so that you would not experience eternal death. Earthly death is nothing. Everybody dies. You might die in a boat. You might die in a car. You might die in your bed. You might die in the grocery store. Don't do that. You'll be very embarrassed when you realize what your body did in the middle of the grocery store when you died. So don't do that. And if you have a heart attack, if I ever have a heart attack up here, don't come and give me CPR unless you use the modern technique where you just press. But if I come back and you were on my mouth, we'll never be able to look each other in the eye again, okay? So don't do that. Just let me go. I'll be fine. So everybody go out quietly, get an ambulance here and take me away. 
You see, the irony is that the disciples didn't understand that the king had not only come to rescue them from death, but that the king had come to rescue them from eternal death and hell. And they didn't seem to understand that this king had come to conquer physical death and give them eternal life by taking their punishment on the cross and dying their death and rising in victory over the grave. So Jesus looks at them after he calms the storm and says, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? Have you still no faith? Interesting little questions there, interesting words. In other words, what Jesus was saying to them is that your fear of the storm and death is linked to a lack of belief in who I claim to be. They seemingly believed that Jesus was an amazing teacher who could do amazing miracles, but there was a disconnect between what he was doing and who he was and why he had come. You know, as I've thought about this storm and I've thought about this story and I've thought about the disciples and their question, I've wondered how Jesus would have responded to them if they had woken him up and just said, Jesus, we're afraid. We're afraid. That kind of a statement is very different than than the clear accusation of, don't you care? And this is where this whole thing hits home for me, and I think it does for a lot of us. And maybe you don't have this problem, but I know that too often in life I have accused God of things instead of admitting my fear and my lack of trust in his power and love for me. But the king who sits on the throne doesn't care. Recently, I woke up a couple months ago, I woke up in the night. I know I'm 62, been a pastor for 21 years, been teaching the Bible for almost 40 years, and I just had to learn this. And it might be because of my short-term memory issues that I'm learning things and it's like I never even thought of this before but it could be that but I woke up in the night and I began worrying not just anxiety that was unrelated to things but worrying about different situations and they were racing through my mind nighttime is you just don't want to wake up in the night it's just not good and your brain just goes to really bad places during the night I knew that worrying wasn't what God wanted me to do. And I decided to think of a verse that I could quote to myself. And Philippians 4, 7 came to my mind and it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So that was all going through my mind. That verse was hitting and all the other things were racing. 
And I focused in on that last phrase about the peace of God guarding your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I began to repeat it to myself over and over and over again while everything was still racing. Those of us with ADHD can do that. We have a billion things going and we can be thinking about this and thinking about all these things at the same time. When I was in college, I used to be able to watch a football game, talk on the phone to my mom and study for a test next day and I would get an A on the test and I could tell you what my mom and I talked about and I could tell you about specific details from the game. That's how my brain used to work. It does not anymore. Now it's just like mash it all together and don't know what happened for sure. But I kept repeating it in my head like a magic mantra that if I said this, eventually God would give me peace and the fear would go away and the worrying would go away. So I just kept repeating it and repeating it and repeating it, but I found that I was still worrying. And my first reaction to that was a level of frustration that it wasn't working. And it was just like, God, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be at peace here and I'm quoting your word to me and, I'm, and I believe it's your word and you're not giving me peace. And then I suddenly realized an important thing. I wasn't doing what God had told me to do. I had turned his words into a magic thing. I saw this week on Facebook, you can buy a cross with a copy of the Bible engraved on a little quarter inch by quarter inch square. It's a nano Bible. And you can put that cross, put it in that cross or another piece of jewelry and carry it with you everywhere. So that everywhere you go, you have the Bible next to your heart. And I'm thinking, you can't even read the stupid thing. What use is that? It's not that it's there. It's that you're reading it and interacting with it. But they're gonna sell, you know how many grandmas are gonna buy that for their kids to hope that that will help them go in the right way? It's just the way grandmas and grandpas think. It's who we are. But I hadn't made the choice to bring my worries to God in prayer. I was not being thankful for his powerful control over the circumstances of my life. And I wasn't resting in the fact that these circumstances were intended to make me more like Jesus. I was just quoting a verse to myself because that was gonna make it all better. But that verse specifically says, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God in prayer and supplication, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I hadn't brought, I hadn't made the choice to bring my worries to God in prayer. I wasn't being thankful for his powerful control over the circumstances of my life, and I wasn't resting in the fact that these circumstances were intended to make me more like Jesus. I want to say that twice because I want you to catch it. I was seeking peace in what God had said, but not doing what God had said with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. 
In closing this morning, I want to remind you this morning that our God who reigns in power over his creation has chosen to bless you with strength and peace through faith in King Jesus. That's what Psalm 29 tells us. And what lies in front of us is a reciprocal choice, actually reciprocal choices. We try to have a reciprocal relationship with God. If I do, you will do. And God says, this is a reciprocal relationship, but you're not thinking right. I did, I do, so you respond. That's the reciprocal part of it. I have done, I am, I will do, so you do. The reciprocal choice that lies in front of us is a choice in faith to trust in Jesus. A choice in faith to be thankful to God in all circumstances. A choice in faith to rest in the truth that Jesus does care and has provided a way that we can have eternal life and will never perish. Don't you care? (laughs) He cared and cares more than you could ever imagine. Our prayer is that we as the King's brothers and sisters will make our requests known to our mutual Father and thankfully move forward trusting His goodwill in the power of the gift of His strength and peace. Let's pray. Father, I acknowledge this morning that You have been so good to us. And I acknowledge on behalf of these people and myself that you have cared for us in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. As Paul says, oh, that you, I pray for you that you would know the height and depth and length and breadth to know the love of Jesus, which surpasses understanding. Lord, help us to understand in those moments when we do connect the dots and we do begin to understand how much you love us, that that's just just like a piece of sand on the edge of the ocean in relation to how much you love us and you care for us. May you help us this week as we celebrate this holiday of thanksgiving. Help us to be thankful to you for how you have worked in our life. Help us to realize that in all the events of our lives, you have sat enthroned. And that Jesus sits enthroned. And that together you sit enthroned for eternity forever and help us to rest in the fact that you only do what's good for your children and help us to desire more than anything else 
to want to be like Jesus. I ask these things in your son's name. Amen.